I, I so heard, I so heard when you said not everybody's using Node. I so heard not everybody's using Node like they should. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of the JavaScript Jabber podcast. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming to you live from the forest of Orm, Utah. We also have Jameson Dance. Hey. And I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com. And uh, this week, we're going to be just talking about stuff that we've run across. Now, one thing that I want to mention before we really get going is that uh, we we all kind of live in the same general area. You guys all live in Utah Valley, right? Yeah, correct. So, um, um, I, in fact, I think I'm the most remote of the three of us. But uh, anyway, so we, we attend the same JavaScript user group and we're on the same mailing list for the user group. And so this week, we're just going to kind of talk about some of the stuff that uh, we've seen come up and, uh, you know, some of the stuff that we've been discussing um, in the chat uh, before the show. So one of the first things that came up was... Um, there was a, a, a company here in Utah that uh, said that they were moving from Node.js to Ruby on Rails. And, uh, you know, there was some discussion about uh, about why that was and, and what what that meant. It basically um, seems like he's, he's talking about doing a CRUD app and he missed a lot of the tooling and the convention and the automatic stuff that you get from Rails since it's such a mature platform um, where you just get restful resources that work out of the box and, and lots of decisions have been made for you, whereas with Node, you have to start from scratch every time you make an app. You have to create the world kind of a new for every new app you start and for every new resource you make. And well, that, and that that's not fair to say because there are tools that do the scaffolding. There's they just not a clear winner. Much less well known and much less mature, though. Yeah, and the other thing is, is that scaffolding is really kind of the it, it, it isn't what makes Rails Rails. So I mean, for example, you do you can use the scaffolding scaffolding and it will generate something that does the crud and follows the rest conventions that rails is set up but um you know there there are a lot more there's a lot more there you know just from a security standpoint and functionality standpoint that you don't have to build yourself as opposed to what's in node.js so from the security standpoint what are you talking about exactly well it has built-in cross-site uh request forgery uh protection and um you know there there are a lot of plugins and, and things that allow you to easily set up ssl encryption and things like that and um you know with with all of those different uh, features and tools it just makes it really easy to roll it out i'm not saying you can't do it with node.js but it, it makes it pretty easy and that that's that's the big win i think with with rails is that they've thought through a lot of these processes and said okay well let's just do a lot of this by default so at ITV, we use a lot of services where we have okay. kind of a service-oriented architecture. And we have run into lots of problems with having each service um, be kind of designed from scratch. So with Rails, you get a lot of decisions made for you. And you might not agree with all of those decisions all the time, but there's actually a lot of value in just having one less thing to decide and to argue about. Even if it might be suboptimal for your use case, the fact that you don't have to think about it at all and you can just kind of work around it if it turns out to be 
uh, not that great is really valuable. Um, yeah. Well, and the other thing is, is what you're talking about is Rails is an opinionated framework that uses convention over configuration. And um, so the conventions are what's nice, but you can actually configure them so that so that you can do something that is outside of the um, outside of the convention if you so desire. Yeah. And and Node almost is a framework framework like you you use it to make stuff that can make stuff. So the uh, conventions I, are, I, I, I mean, think, at least when you're talking about doing web apps with it, I mean, you, I guess if you want, you can just write using the HTTP server and stuff, but I don't know. Well, it, the the has, conventions live in each individual app instead of in some centralized place. It feels like, but sometimes yeah. you need that. And, you know, so there is definitely power in, you know, being able to make the decisions and, and build it from the ground up and get exactly what you need. I mean, it, for me, it's not, that one's right and one's wrong. It's just right, oh, no. to, right tool, right job, right? Yeah. What, what's AJ going to say, though? I feel like I keep cutting him off. So I was going to say, uh, so first of all, to, to Chuck's earlier point, the CSRF and all those standard things, they're available in Note. Like if you're using Connect or Express, um, the modules are there. So it's you, you do have the security things. Um, I would definitely entirely agree that Node has some distinct disadvantages in the community. One is it's only been around for, what, two, three years? Um, yeah. Another is that whereas in the Ruby community, you have a, a pretty tight group of people that are like-minded, in the JavaScript community, all of the leaders completely disagree with each other and bicker all the time. Like, you can't get Crockford and Isaac Schuler and uh, Jeremy Ashkins and... Uh, Ra- um, John Resig to agree on anything. And those are like the leaders. So you have these four different schools and then everybody's going in a different direction and saying that everyone else is wrong. So that is like a huge problem that is affecting the whole JavaScript environment as mm-hmm. you know, as I see it. So Node is not going to have the cohesiveness that Ruby has probably ever because you can never get those four or five guys to agree on anything. Right. But but most Are- of those guys don't care about Node. Well, not don't care about it. They don't. They're not directly involved in the Node community, right? Of the four guys you mentioned, I think Isaac's is the only one that's actually. I mean, he's a, the leader of the project, but all the other guys are just kind well, of. Well, what about Jeremy? I, th- I thought that uh, you know CoffeeScript has gained just huge momentum in Node. Yeah. Um, so I consider has, that more of a Node technology than a browser technology. He doesn't or, really influence the direction of, of Node itself at all, I don't think. Yeah, and well, CoffeeScript is pretty much engine agnostic, right? It just compiles down to Java, JavaScript and runs. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and I, I can see that to a certain degree. Um, part of the deal, though, is that, uh, you know, Ruby on Rails is basically um, built by, you know, a handful of guys that make the decisions. I mean, we, we, we all give input and we tell them why, what we hate about it and they ignore some of it and use some of it depending on how they think it fits with the philosophy of the framework. Um, and that's the way it ought to be. And to be yeah. honest, I don't know if it's necessarily fair to compare Node.js with Rails because effectively what we're doing is we're comparing um, a framework on Ruby with a, a language implementation of JavaScript. And to be honest, you know, if there was a framework that was comparable to Node that or comparable to Rails that ran on Node.js, then I think we might be having a little bit different conversation here. So yeah. the thing with that is there are some people that are trying to make more full stack opinionated frameworks. Um, I mm-hmm. think there's one like Rails car or something like that tower js yeah there's there's a few of them that all have like real road industry inspired names to kind of yeah but that's that's the that's the problem with their names is like 
who wants to use something that's built to be like Ruby? Just use Rails, you know? Well, yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. I think, so part of the, the issue with this guy's email on the mailing list is he's writing a CRUD app, right? He's writing an app that, frankly, Rails was pretty well designed to handle. Um, it mm-hmm. gives you CRUD functionality basically out of the box. And Node can do CRUD, but its strengths are for different problems. So, I mean, a lot of people get into the Node versus Rails thing, and I guess we kind of are too, but they solve very different problems. Like for us, so I, I complained a little bit about service-oriented stuff in Node, but it's also really nice when you're calling out to all these different services underneath you at the same time. And it, it's great to do that asynchronously um, so you don't really have to block on any of these calls. Yeah, so it, but Ruby has non-blocking I.O., so it's really a non-issue there either. Yeah, if you use Event Machine, yeah. No, it, Ruby, the language, has non-blocking I.O. It won't block on I.O. calls. Oh, really? really? When did that change? It's always been that way, hasn't it? No, no. Well, the event machine, um, remember when, what's that web server called? It starts with like a T, I think, built on event machine. Thin. Yeah. When Thin was coming out was like when there was all this big hubbub about um, event-oriented architecture and, and non-blocking. And, and that was about the time, you know, within that six months of excitement on Thin and other things that were coming up is when node started to gain some traction i don't know i I'll, from what i understand basically the way it works is you have um the the threads in Ra- in ruby which aren't native threads like you would normally see in a regular um unix application um but basically if if you have one thread that st- that is uh, waiting for io then it'll just it'll just round robin to the other threads well that's yeah. the nature of threading i mean that's that's not the, all right. threaded language just work that way. Right. That's I'm not just saying it, it doesn't, yeah, but it doesn't block your entire process. Yeah, if you want to do it so, in threads. I was just talking about without using threads. So if you just yeah. code without threads, then it block. Yeah, if, if you have a single thread on a single process, then yeah, it's going to block. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I understand that, that JavaScript is a little bit different that way. So Now, the, the one thing that I do like about working in Node um, and in that community, I use Connect a lot. Um, but the thing that I really like is it seems to me easy to debug people's code because of the nature of the language. Like mm-hmm. with Ruby, there's all that monkey patching, which I, I think Ruby is such a fun language to start learning. But I feel as I learned it more, it became more difficult to learn more rather than easier because of all of the um, the monkey patches and like the three line functions where you have to chase around like this to that to that to that to figure out what's going on. And it is in a different file in a different directory and it's just a, a two-line function that you got to find somewhere. Needle and haystack problem, you know? That, that's coding style, though. That's not the language. Are you talking about the metaprogramming stuff? Yeah, I'm talking about all that metaprogramming stuff where, where like, um, it, you have something like find by ID and username, and then it parses the function name to determine what the parameters are that should be passed to the function. Mm-hmm. So instead of, like, instead of calling find and then saying, you know, name equals the this uh, and age equals this, they do dot find by age and username and then pass in uh, age and then username. Like that kind of stuff gets really confusing to debug. For, well, for yeah. me, that was I, a barrier for me. I can see that. I 
I generally don't do that. And again, it comes down to whether or not you like those magic functions or not. But uh, yeah, I can definitely see that. And so a, a lot of the other metaprogramming stuff, if you directly, for example, in, in Ruby have open classes, in JavaScript, you kind of have the same thing. I mean, you can you can change stuff on an object just, you know, you know, willy nilly. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out where the change came in if somebody doesn't, you know, um, properly namespace their changes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that can make it hard to debug. Didn't, you could probably correct me on this, Chuck, didn't Rails in version 2 used to have a lot more kind of hairy magic metaprogramming? And wasn't that part of the, the changes to Rails 3? Was they cleaned it up a little bit? Um, I think they cleaned some of it up. I think I think most of it, they, they just, kind of magic. well, they, they moved a lot of it out into, it, like, each each set of functionality is now sort of in its own library. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's easier to figure out what's going on there because it's like, okay, this comes out of active model and this comes out of active record and this comes out of, you know, this other place. And you can kind of mix and match some of it. And, um, for example, use a different ORM and then you get different functionality with different libraries and things. And since, since they uh, kind of broke it apart, it makes it a lot easier to manage. But I don't know if they did away with a lot of the magic metaprogramming stuff that, that AJ is talking about. So if we're talking about Node as well, though, um, debugging in Node can be kind of awful because the stack traces are so bad. If stuff happens on the next tick in the event loop and you lose all the context of where the calls came from and stuff. I think, aren't domains supposed to fix that, though, in Node 8? Um, I don't know about that, but I haven't had problems recently with those kind of call traces because that was something they were working on in, in point 0.4, and I think they've done pretty well in point 0.6. Um, it's very rare now that I get one of those two-line stack traces. Normally, I'm seeing stuff that's uh, readable and, and helps me figure out where it is. I see a lot of stuff that just ends up at process.next tick, and that's kind of frustrating. Hmm. That may be that's uh, the bottom of the stack trace. It may be a, a code style thing, too, a little bit, because there are certain ways that you get more um, stack trace, and then there are certain ways where you lose more. You mean with anonymous functions? Yeah, just different styles of setting up how your asynchronous flow goes. Hmm. Um, I have to say, anonymous functions are the bane of my existence. I freaking hate those things. <laughs> like, you're trying to figure out what's going on, and it's like, function on this line, and it's like, that that doesn't help. Oh, man. Yeah, they're, they... They're two-edged they, sword. They definitely are. I, I really wish that people would not use them so liberally. I mean, it's nice for something really simple, like... Um, the for each, mm-hmm. where you, you know you just want to make a quick anonymous function, but I agree it would be a lot nicer if if yeah, they use then, functions and then lambdas and not the you know these three hundred line anonymous function things that are have bad scope and. Well, well, the thing is, is I mean, you have a function reference, so just define the function and then use the, you know, the the variable name. But then I have to type five more characters. Oh yeah. <laughs> then minify it when you're done. <laughs> But then so, I have to use a build process. Well, you have to anyway. You should anyway. So that's. But then I like to whine. <laughs> <laughs> now you sound like my kids. And you're in the right place, AJ. <laughs> um, we should talk about CoffeeScript then, because one of the wonderful and also horrible things about CoffeeScript is the arrow syntax for functions. And it makes it so much easier to use it to define and use anonymous functions, which means that since instead of having to type function and then curly braces and stuff, you just type the arrow and it, it just happens. 
well, JS. I find myself using you, anonymous functions all over the place in coffee. JS dot dot next does you one better because it's only one character star. Oh, oh really? Yeah. If you if you look up um, the JS dot next transpiler that Google has, and there's another one too that maybe Fire or Mozilla has. But yeah, um, you can start writing JS next that will compile down to JS, and you can do things like use star instead of uh, the function declaration. Yeah, but anyway. even even then, you can still do var function name equals you know you star can. or yeah, yeah, in yeah. CoffeeScript, you know um, variable you name equals arrow notation. I mean, it, but it's, it, it's right there, Chuck. It's so easy. <laughs> it is. It is easy, but it's just as easy to assign it to something that you can actually then reference. It makes your code reusable. Is Ugh, anyway, another, I, I'm, another, I'm with you. Another thing with that is is the error handling paradigm in Node. Um, and we're actually running into problems with this in the services where you every, every function takes a callback and the first parameter is an error. So every time you ever use one of those callbacks, you just have to check if the first parameter is an error. Um, it, it feels like a lot of repeated code. Have you guys developed any better strategies for handling errors when you're using Node? Like I have a controller that's probably 30 lines of error checking from all these different services and 50 lines of code. I like my strategy. I don't check for errors. <laughs> Honestly, though, to be perfectly honest, I haven't done a ton with Node. So this isn't a problem that I'm really all that familiar with. So um, The way that I handle it is, one, I don't compose too much because you run into that problem when you have like asynchronous composition um, where, you know, you've got this asynchronous function calls that asynchronous function calls that asynchronous function. And, and then you do end up with where, you know, so you have these 10 functions and each one of them is checking the area of error of the previous one. Um, and I think if you really want to clean up code where you're doing that a lot, then you want to look at a flow control library that will handle it a little bit better so that you're not, um, it, so just so that it feels better. And that's one of the things I wish that they had added to JS Next is some, some sort of default way of saying, we all agree that flow control sucks in JavaScript. Here's something built into the language that can help us handle it. That, that leads so, me to a question that I have. So I'm pretty familiar with Compose Method. I mean, you know, I've talked to Kent Beck about it, and, you know, I've, I've you know, it, it's something that I like. Yeah, name dropping. <laughs> there we go. But, uh, yeah, we, we had him on Ruby Rogues, and we talked about, um, what was it, Small Talk Best Practice Patterns. Yeah, and, that was good. I listened to it. You know, I, I think that's something, the book, both the book and the episode are something that's worth anybody listening to that's in programming because the, the principles kind of apply anywhere. But uh, so if you're using compose method, yeah, you can compose all the way down to, okay, I need a, a method that increments this variable, and then I need another method that uses the incremented variable to, you know, and, and you can compose it all the way down to, you know, idiocy. Um, and I like that AJ kind of brought up the asynchronous composition where you kind of do the same thing except, you know, it's all evented, so it's, it's okay, increment, and then, you know, fire an event that will cause something to use that, you know, whatever. Does does that does that tend to get any better or worse? Does does asynchronous composition is that any better or worse when you boil it down to that level of insanity? Um, is is it better or worse than synchronous composition? Oh, it's heck of way worse. If if you like. It's absolutely wretched. You you need to research a flow control library and look at it if you want code to be kind of pretty in JavaScript if you're doing a lot of composition because you'll have more lines of function declaration and error checking like Jameson was saying. Now, what I have found is that if you use the, the prototype style, you know, like creating classes, um, it, it's a lot better. I've started using the prototype classic, the proto-classical, whatever you want to call that, design pattern um, a lot more recently. 
and it's it's improved the functionality of the code, like um, the the performance, as well as uh, makes the code easier to read. Um, and and I have less problems with composition because I'm storing more stuff in this, and so you have less callback, fewer callback parameters, and more that you're just storing in this. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yes. So one of the problems with the asynchronous flow composition is it seems like a lot of syntax and boilerplate for like three asynchronous operations, right? So you get a request in your server, you need to call it to some other service, and then you need to hit a database. So that's like two or three asynchronous calls or asynchronous operations that you have Mm -hmm. to do. And if you use a flow control library, then you have to define like an end function and you have to somehow wrap it all up in in the function call to like async.foreach or async.sequence or something like that. I don't know, it just feels like a lot of boilerplate. And that's where anonymous functions are are siren-like in their call to me. (laughs) So uh, have you used it for just really little simple things like that? Uh, The flow control stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is two or three things. So the the main things that I use are there's three functions in the futures library that I wrote, futures.js, that the the for each async, when I have a list of items of data that I'm going over, um, sequence, if I have a number of functions that I want to use sequentially, um, join, for if I have a couple of asynchronous functions and I just want to know when they're all done, and then I, I added a new one uh, like a week or two ago, lateral, which is a combination of sequence and join. You do batches of things, basically a thread pool. You do four things at a time and then queue up another thing every time one of the things in the pool finishes. Um, For the really small stuff, like what you're saying with a database call, uh, a web request, and and then uh, like a file call. I usually just do those by hand, mm-hmm. and it's annoying. So um, one other thing that that we were talking about before the um, one thing that we we're talking about before the show was that you know you brought up uh, scaffolding and generators for like because uh, Ruby on Rails has those, um, and and I was wondering if if such a thing exists um, in in JavaScript. Is that part of like the different frameworks or things that you can use or you know, are there different generators like that or have people written them? So there's, I've heard that there are some, but I haven't really used them um, because it's, I don't know. I don't know why I don't use them. It seems like I would, but it's <laughs> as painful as JavaScript is. I don't find it that painful at the end, you know? We we use it. So we use uh, Grunt for some of our front end stuff. And we just use it to generate when, when we want to make like a new uh, backbone view. We generate a style sheet and a HTML template and a coffee script file for it. So we do a little bit with it, but not a huge ton. And it's all kind of just hand-rolled with Grunt. So what, is, I what is Grunt? So Grunt is one of these build tools. Um, you can use it. it. It's kind of designed to work with the require JS style stuff, but you can extend it with plugins. So so it'll do things like uglify your code and uh, run the require JS like compiler to put all your code into one JavaScript file and, and things like that. And we just extended it to have a task to create these files that we use for our, our backbone stuff. But right. that's about the extent of it. So I, I'm going to bring up something. I'm bringing Rails up again, but basically it's to kind of illustrate generators a little bit in the way I use them. Um, so generators, you know, they just generate your boilerplate code. And it seems like about 90% of the time when I generate something with a generator, I wind up removing a lot of the boilerplate code. So yeah. it's just basically, um, for example, I was doing an example where I was building a blog in Rails and I was I was just showing how quickly you can put one together. But um, 
um, you know, when I was working with comments, turns out that I only needed the create method because everything else is shown on the, the post page. And so I did a scaffold generator, which gives you all of the CRUD operations for uh, comments. And then I went in and I removed everything except create. And so I removed like 80% of the controller, you know, just, yeah. to, just to put it there. But the nice thing is, is it did set everything up for me. And then all I had to do was just, you know, take out a, a bunch of lines. I think that's why you write them yourself. I mean, if you need a generator, it's because you are doing lots of repetitive things and you're the best person to know what, yeah. what solution would help you. So, um, I mean, that's why it's nice because we were like, well, we do this for every single backbone view we create. We create a stylus sheet and we create an HTML template. So we'll just wrap this up. And uh, I don't know. I, it's not crazy hard. I can even post a link to it. I think it's open, but I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. I think our grunt extensions are open source. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's pretty easy. Just a, maybe 30 lines of JavaScript to generate it. Yeah. So one other thing that occurred to me with the workflow discussion we were having, just to jump back to that real quick, was is there any reason why after you complete each step of the asynchronous process that you couldn't just call the the function at the end that's supposed to clean everything up and, and have it check to make sure or even a function that just checks to make sure that it's ready to end and then when it's not it just you know it just says okay I'm not ready and then it's done. You mean just only handle errors at the very last asynchronous call? I guess basically what I'm saying is like if you have to make a database call and you have to go open a file and you have to go um, you know access two or three other services that are out on the internet um, if you don't have that data back yet then it's not ready to finish up you know you have that last thing that kind of ties it all together and so couldn't you just say um, this is the guy that is supposed to get called after me and so you call him and before he actually does his job he does a quick check that says um, yes hey yeah. am I ready to go no I'm not ready to go okay I'm done and then the next guy that that also calls through through to him says he's after me calls him and then finally when enough of them have called and said hey I'm done and it goes and checks okay now I have everything I need and then it runs yes yeah. so you can do that in the sense that you can um, it kind of like the decorator pattern, right? So you can create a, a class and then run it through a function that will wrap all of those functions and that kind of logic. Mm -hmm. um, it's still not... It, it's not the, pretty. The problem is that that the language itself doesn't address the issue. Right. And so even when you use these libraries, like... Um, so I created this as part of futures. There's this um, function called Chainify, which basically allows you to wrap something in that fashion. But the problem is I, I designed it. It's really pretty. It looks really nice. It, it feels really nice if you're writing an API with it. But I never end up using it because it's like too much boilerplate, just like Jameson was saying before, that you have to do. So you've got to require the library. You've got to include it. And then... And then if you do it by hand, the best thing you can do is use prototypes. If you use prototypes um, and you store things in this, that's the simplest way to do it. It's not as pretty as if you're using some flow control solution, but less boilerplate. Well, kind of. So you're, you're talking like the language should give you a good way of handling this. And I want to yes. I want to push back a little bit because, I mean, ultimately, the, the language is giving you enough of the tools to solve, you know, 80, 90 percent of, of the things that are going to get thrown at it. In fact, I'm pretty well convinced that most of the programming languages out there for at least 60 to 70 percent of the um, problems that, that are going to be thrown at it, it's it's fine for, you know. And so, you know, 60, 60 to 70 percent, maybe more, you know 
know, can be handled by JavaScript. You know, they could be handled just as well by Ruby or C Sharp or Java. You know, now whether or not those actually fit the way that you want to approach or think about the problem, that's a different discussion. Well, well, but, okay. Ruby has generators, right? And Python has generators and they're really useful. Or, and now we're talking about generator, the programming construct, not generator, the writes my code for me. Okay. Right. Uh, Does Ruby have generators? Um, doesn't, it, doesn't it have like a, a built-in iterator? Maybe yeah, it has iterators. Yes. Iterators, yes. So I, I'm, but, I'm, I'm not as... But anyway, so, so to the point of whether or not it should have a flow control library, I think that's open for debate. Well, but, but here's the thing. Like a language has the tools to manage the kind of things that it does. Like Ruby has all that MapReduce stuff built in, you know? Yeah. It's got it's got so much in there that's just like it makes the language part of what it is. It, it helps define what the language is designed for. Yes. So JavaScript has all this asynchronous stuff kind of by this legacy heritage. But one, it's diverted from the way it was originally used because originally JavaScript had callbacks passed in as the first parameter, not the last parameter. And I don't know who came along and screwed that up for everyone, but it was a terrible mistake. Because <laughs> um, if you pass callbacks as a first parameter, your code gets a lot simpler and a lot cleaner. Um, one, because it's ugly to pass in anonymous functions as a per- first parameter, but also like things like function composition and whatnot become simpler again. They make sense without having to have even more boilerplate. Um, but there, there wasn't really a way, there's not been a way to handle that that flow control. And there really, really should be. Like in, in CoffeeScript, I think it would be great if somebody just came up with a, a mechanism that could be, you know, a library in JavaScript, but was just part of CoffeeScript where every function has um, a dot on. Like every function is an event emitter or like every function you know, has some method of, of like, the, I, I just think what's crazy is they're adding generators to the language. So, so you can call like dot iterate, or I forget what the keyword is, but on any function will not have like a dot iterate. Um, or but dot yet, each? I, I don't remember what exactly it was, they're, but they're adding something as every function will have it, just like arguments. Like arguments just exist. It's just there. You get it for free. You don't have to create it. Uh, uh-huh. And there needs to be something like arguments for flow control, something that is part of every function, just like this, just like arguments, that helps you navigate it without having to use a library. Because every single person that writes in JavaScript either shoots themselves in the face or uses a flow control library. Or they're one of those elitists that's like, oh, I love writing 100,000 lines of code and making it complicated and repeating myself everywhere. So um, not a straw man at all. <laughs> Those are the only three options. Right. So uh, I'm, I'm just trying have to get my head around what you're... Script, by the way, AJ, it's CoffeeScript with... Have you seen Iced CoffeeScript, by the way? It's CoffeeScript no. with built-in flow control as part of the compiler. So that? it has this await and defer stuff. So it's kind of a library, but it's also kind of it built into the language. That sounds amazing. That is exactly the kind of thing that I have wanted to see. Uh, I, I actually put a link said, to it in the chat, so... Yeah, yeah, I just opened it up. But I was on some discussion um, like six months ago go on the coffee script bug page or something where we were having this discussion about well flow control should be in the language because with coffee script you have the liberty to do it so i'll definitely have to take a look at this 
You were saying something a second ago, Chuck. What was it? I was just wondering if, well, I was misunderstanding because I was, I was thinking iterators instead of, um, you know, the flow control. Oh. And so anyway, but yeah, I, I like the idea of having some sense of built in um, flow control, but I think it has to be simpler than, than what, you know, like futures JS where it, it's, you know, here's, here's how you chain these together and here's how you build these out sequentially and stuff. Well, I, I think, I think the pattern needs to be simpler where it's just like, when I'm done, this is who I'm talking to, or when I'm done, this is the event that I'm firing. And, uh, you know, and then that's it. Well, so. I, I, I would argue there needs to be two things. There needs to be how, who to call, who to call when I'm done, but there are two different ways primarily that people are using this. One is you do all the asynchronous things at once and you want to know when it's all done. And the other is you want to do it in sequence. Those are the two really important use cases that if the built-in construct doesn't handle both of them in some way, then it's, you still need something else because with the, with the join thing, basically all you do is you, you have a counter, you say, I have this number of asynchronous functions. Every time one completes, I increment the counter. When I get up to, you know, counter equals number of functions, then I end. The other one is you're saying every time a function finishes, do the next function in the queue. If all functions are done and a function gets added to the queue, do it right now. Right. Right. But but then we need a simple notation for that. And oh, definitely. You know, I, I don't know that because uh, because it has to feel natural. You know, it, it's it's not a, you know, workflow managers, you know, superstructure manage these thingies and these thingies and these thingies. You know, it just doesn't. It, it, if it's too cumbersome, people won't. I mean, people will use it because it pays off, but, you know, it, 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 it should feel natural to the language. They'll and, still whine about it. Yeah. Whereas if it feels like it's it's just a natural flow from the language, then it makes sense. And, well, I, and, and I, I think I think oh. it's it's an interesting conversation. But again, you know, I mean, you, you brought up the, uh, the iterator stuff that's built into Ruby. Well, in fact, that's actually part of the core libraries. It's not actually in, in the core of the language itself. It's something that's added in and distributed with the language. And so, I, I mean, people use it like it's a core part of the language and it may as well be, but you know, there is a slight distinction there. Well, in JavaScript, when you declare a function, like in Ruby, you you have so much meta programming that you can really do almost whatever you want. Aside from changing the syntax, you, you're go. And then even you changing the syntax, you, you, can, you can fake it out a lot of times. But in JavaScript, there's no way for me to say, at least I don't think there is. Yeah, there's, there's, it would it would be changing the syntax of the language to say that there's there's an object that's like this that's part of every single function that gives me the ability either to declare myself as a callback or to declare myself as an endpoint for uh, an asynchronous process. Right. Because you what the way that it that it would work best is if there was instead of a return there was like a complete and so if the function were going to be asynchronous when you call complete then it would uh, do the uh, the callback if it's asynchronous and if it's synchronous it would do it as a return like it would just it would just pick either or mm -hmm. depending on how you were using the function and then like after you declared the function you could call like a dot win or a dot then or something of that nature or maybe like a a dot poop asynchronous callback. You should just you should rewrite node. Poop. There's actually, there are people that are working on it. Just fork with, it. Uh, with stuff like that where it, it, well, it's not quite like that. Things that and look it be synchronous node, but it would are be asynchronous. Yeah, and, and I was going to say that that's the that's the rub, right? Is you get used to that notation in Node or the Node.branch or whatever. And then, you know, you go into the browser or on a machine that doesn't have your branch with your functionality in it, and then you're you're in a mess. So, yeah. Yeah, if, if it's implemented 
well in this iced coffee. I think mm-hmm. it, it really needs to be something that's at that core level where it's part of the syntax. It's easy. It's simple. It's enjoyable. Yeah, makes sense. So I want to jump in on something else really quickly. Um, and this is something that we were talking about going into that we'll talk on real quick. And that is JSON APIs and JSON in general. Um, I think the big win for JSON in general is just that if you execute it with a JavaScript engine, then it you, you get an object back, which is, which is kind of the big win there between JSON and JavaScript. Am I wrong? No, but I would say further than that, um, it's every high level language uses JSON as part of it's, you know, it's part of the core distributed libraries. So it's, it's know, better. Everybody. It's not just JavaScript. It's an object notation. That's a generic object notation. Right. So so all the higher level languages have some sort of support for JSON. Yeah. And, and turning it into native objects in that language. So like in Python, you can map JSON into, you can turn JSON into Python dictionaries. And in Ruby, you can turn it into hashes and stuff. Yeah. Which is great. And the big win with JSON in comparison to the other elephant in the room is that JSON defines um, objects, arrays, numbers, booleans, strings, and null. Whereas the other big elephant in the room defines nothing. You have to have some sort of document, interpreter, style, guide, sheet, XLS, TMVRX, Java, something or other. So you're, you're trying to figure out how to turn XML into a four-letter word? <laughs> it already is. <laughs> a three-letter acronym into a four-letter word? XML. <laughs> XML. So uh, when you use XML, you go to XML. So, so my big thing with that is that, uh, I mean, a lot of the enterprise uh, solutions out there use XML. And ultimately, if you have a parser that understands what it's doing with the XML, I don't think it's a big deal. But, but it's different in every language. Yes, there is that. And the I mean, even even if there are standards like SOAP, that's a four letter word. Um, yeah, it is. You know, it, there, it, it provides you with enough um, conventions for understanding it. But still, um, it just it doesn't. I don't know. For, for me, I like to be able to read my APIs if I have to. And so that that's the big win for me with JSON is that I can I can glance at a single object and I can figure out what it's about without having to read this entire document to figure out or this section of a document to figure out what it's doing. Um, and the other thing that's nice about JSON is that it's less chatty because, um, I mean, you just annotate it with curly braces, colons, and square braces, Where, whereas with the others, you're effectively using XML tags to do it. But I, I don't think that's a major loss just because, I mean, we're talking about pretty minute, you know, amounts of data being passed back and forth. Well, I, I think that the, uh, like that, the thing with XML that drives me nuts is there's no standard for it and everyone uses it differently. Like Apple will open up a tag called like, you know, open the data tag and then type equals array. And then like, you can't create a generic parser for XML because it won't know what the heck to do with it. It won't know whether to turn something into an array or if it should turn it into a property because it's, there's only one of them. And then like the distinction between an attribute and a property and yeah. that my beef is there's no way to parse it. Right. So are there any issues with JSON between the different higher level languages? Um, the only issue I know of is comments. Sometimes you just want to be able to comment out of a line out of your config file. Uh-huh. But in that case, you use YAML because YAML and JSON are a one-to-one. They're both object notation. They're almost exactly identical. Um, right. It's just white space instead of well, curly braces. and YAML parses JSON, but JSON doesn't parse YAML. So JSON is a strict subset of YAML. Okay. 
I think Crockford said he, he didn't allow comments because people were using them as parsing instructions and that yes. would have just opened up a whole <laughs> horrible can of worms. It would have made JSON not simple. Yeah, they were doing like type hinting and stuff like that. You know, like the kind of thing that you do in JavaScript for the closure compiler, I think is. Yeah, well, now what people tend to do is they'll have like a top level key or attribute on their JSON object. And then that will tell them what type the, you know, or what object to convert the the value that it has to. And that's perfectly appropriate. Yep. So anyway, that that's one thing I like about JSON. I'm actually putting together a webinar. And I hate to use that word mainly because I got a lot of blowback for using that word. I'm going to be doing some live online training. Let me put it that way on JSON sometime in June. Um, I'll have, hopefully I'll have the sign up available um, here before the this episode goes out and uh, then people can go and sign up and I'm just gonna I'm gonna be talking about like the different concerns that are there um, how to keep it secure how to how to structure your JSON so that it makes sense you know and and the different approaches that people take to it so that you can communicate in the best way between your your uh, your service and your consumer of your service um, and I'm also gonna bring up a couple of unconventional things that a few people have pointed out to me that I think are interesting that you can do with JSON to provide APIs in maybe a less standard but maybe more useful way. So um, interesting. Yeah. So anyway, if you're if you're interested in any of that, then you know I'll, I'll put the link up in the show notes, and you can go over there and just click on it and sign up. Um, I'm going to be charging uh, fifty bucks a seat, and uh, it'll probably be an hour and a half to two hours. Um, and then if you can't make it on the day that I'm doing it, I'll, I'll put it up for sale, and I'll probably put it up for sale for fifty bucks. The only difference is is that you won't be able to you know ask your questions live and things and and get some feedback on what you're doing so um you know there there is an upside for being there and you'll get a digital copy if you come and listen live so anyway um and let me put out a plug real quick so here at spotterf we use json um as the the data format and so we have actually built a lot of examples for our customers where we've got stuff in the, the difficult languages java c sharp uh c and and we've kind of already discovered some of the gotchas with parsing it and we have little read throughs and that's on our github and uh you can put a link in the show notes for that all right i just added the link all right well let's go ahead and get the picks done um jameson what are your picks so my pick is diablo 3 and that's why i haven't slept very much this week (laughs) i asked my wife if i could buy it and she said well you haven't beat skyrim yet is basically what she told me so uh Because I've, I've played it a little bit. I haven't played it a lot. So well, once you, if you get it, Chuck, hit me up. We'll play sometime. It's, it's great. Can you play together can online? Yeah. Oh, it's sweet. So the, the raging frothing hordes of the internet are grumpy because it's always online. And I agree. That's a horrible thing for a possibly single player game, but that means you can play online really easily. That's the one so, upside. So Diablo three is all online. It's all online. If you're playing by yourself, you're still connected to a server. Really? Um, yeah. That's what if I want to play it on my laptop and I'm on the airplane or something. Then Blizzard does not care about you, Chuck. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Because that's one thing I like about like Diablo 2 is that it's yeah. all on my machine. So it's funny. I, I mean, the game is awesome. I love it. But I could rant for a long time about all the problems that Always Online brings. They have a real money auction house, so you can pay real money to buy items in the game. Oh, geez. That's part of why they want everyone to be online so that everyone will be at least. I mean, if you played it offline, they wouldn't want to let you into the auction house because then you could have duped items and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then that, op- I mean, people get hacked for real money now instead of just your account got hacked and your character 
character lost its items. You like... I think that sounds crazy. Yeah, it opens up a whole can of worms. But regardless of that, the game itself is incredibly fun. Yeah, so this is the second podcast within the last week that's had Diablo 3 picked, so... <laughs> If I don't come to any other podcast episodes, you know why. <laughs> it's because you're in hell or XM hell <laughs> fighting demons. Yep. It's a good metaphor for using XML. All right. Any other picks, Jameson? That's it. No time for other picks. No music? Oh. The music to Diablo 3. <laughs> they have a soundtrack? <laughs> no. The music's great. Everything's great. It's, it's incredibly polished until it shines like a diamond. It's so good. Yeah, and you can even get, like, the, the flawless diamonds, right? You can still collect the gems? Yep, still has those. All right. Um, AJ? Uh, so I've been having some trouble with my VPS. Um, I've been using Thrust VPS, and, and when I first was using them, they are a really good company, and I think they were maybe bought by someone else or something. Mm-hmm. And so I, I personally haven't had as good results with them, and, and a friend of mine has had some trouble too. Uh, so last night I started looking at Amazon EC2, And although it's very corporate and enterprise, so lots of menus, it's a little bit difficult to navigate through. Mm -hmm. But once you spend a couple hours wrapping your head around like what it actually is, it's really simple. Um, And I think I may switch to using the the cloud service. And if you are willing to pay the three years in advance, they're cheaper than anyone else I've I've looked at. You pay three years in advance? Uh, Well... It's there. It's kind of difficult to explain. You'd have to read it, but basically, you reserve an instance for one year or three years, uh-huh. and if you reserve the instance, then your hourly rate is lower. So for your standard VPS, that would be like better than what you would get with say Linode or or Slicehost. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most basic one, you get like I think it's a gigabyte of RAM, 160 gigabytes of storage space, um, and one compute unit, which is like one gigahertz processor. Right. And you pay $300 for three years plus 1.3 cents per hour. Mm -hmm. And so it comes out to about 420 bucks or 12 bucks a month. Oh, okay. So you, you get like a heck of a lot more disk space and a heck of a lot more RAM if you're willing to pay for that three years to reserve it. And if you look at some of the other services to get that same amount, you'd be paying like 40 bucks a month anyway. Right. And if you don't reserve it and you don't want to pay in advance, then the other services are cheaper. Like the the um, Rackspace cloud hosting is, you know, is cheaper than the non-reserved instance on Amazon. Okay, cool. Good to know. Any other picks? Um, well, so far, I'm, I'm interested in this iced coffee script. This might be, be a pick. Okay, we'll let you pick it next week if you like it. Um, all right, so yeah, the the last few days I have been spending a lot of time writing my conference talks and stuff, and so I haven't had a chance to play with a lot of things either. But last night I just I got to the point where I was just done and I, I needed to just unwind. And usually when I do that, I pull out one of my games, you know, like like Skyrim or something, and and I I like started Skyrim, but that was about all I had done. I hadn't actually really gotten in and played it much, and so I I played it for like two or three hours last night. And I, I really actually when, when I first played it, I was like, eh, it's okay. But now that I've been playing it, I I've really gotten into it. I really really enjoy it. So um, my pick is actually going to be Skyrim. Um, I know I'm I'm the big game on the market behind because the big one now is Diablo three. But and and that's something that I really want. But I'll probably just let my wife get it for me for 
for Father's Day, and I'll just keep hinting, gee, I'd really like it for Father's Day. Um, I guess I do have another pick, and this is something that I got for my wife for Mother's Day. Um, besides getting her a gift certificate to get her nails done, which she loves doing, um, I also got her a Roomba, and uh, I have to say, they're really, really cool. Um, I got her a little bit older model. Uh, I guess the newer models are a little bit smarter and, uh, you know, do cool stuff, but, uh, you know, the, the little bit older model is, is really nice. You just push the button, and then it just, you know, goes around and follows the walls and vacuums everything up, and then it'll go across the room and vacuum everything up. Um, it doesn't, if you're used to doing vacuuming and you like having all the lines that go the same way in the same place, yeah, the Roomba isn't so much like that. Um, it it kind of hits the wall and then says, okay, I'm going to turn this far and then go that way. And so you get these lines going all over across the floor. But if you have kids that drop cereal on the floor in the morning, when you feed them breakfast, then the Roomba is really nice for going over and picking it up. Um, and uh, it's probably a little more sanitary than letting your dog or your nine-month-old go over and clean them up. So anyway, um, so those are my picks, Skyrim and Roomba, and I'll have links to those in the show notes as well. Um, so let's go ahead and wrap this up. Just one more, one, one more time. I just want to remind you that I am going to be doing the, the JSON APIs, um, live online training. I'm also going to be doing a, a beginning Ruby on rails online training. Um, as well, I'm also going to be, it looks like putting together the coffee script course for lynda.com. So, um, keep an eye out for that as well. And I'll let you know when it's up. Is there anything else that we wanted to go over guys before we wrap this up? I don't think so. All right. Well, thanks for listening. If you have any feedback for the show, go to javascriptjabber.com and leave us a comment. We do get comments uh, every so often. And uh, I, I need to go play with Node.js so that I can uh, fall in love with it the way you guys have. But anyway, we'll, we'll wrap this up and we'll catch you all uh, next week. See ya. Peace. Peace.